This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Astrum Lux Lucis. All right, welcome to the final episode of season one of On the Record. I am your host, Astrum Lux Lucis. And this week's very special guest to close out the season is a good friend of mine, a companion who I've worked with here in Austin, Texas. She is the owner of Studio E, and she's a producer and director and film person and all that good stuff in the entertainment world. Without further ado, please welcome Liz Reeder. Well, thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. It's it's been a while since we chatted and um I many know. things going on with both of us and so I'm eager to kinda get caught up and let the world in on our conversation and see what good things we can unravel for the listeners. That sounds wonderful to me. That yeah. sounds great. I have been watching what you've been doing. You've really been I am I am so proud of what you're doing. Just your whole man, you are making things happen. Oh, thank you. You know, I got to tell you a quick story that the the listeners will probably enjoy. So I attended Studio E has song class, and I attended a couple years ago. And one of the things that Liz had us do was to watch a video for like five minutes and then just go and sort of interpret that video. And the video that was chosen for me was Beyonce's <laughs> Single Ladies. And Mm -hmm. so I was just like watching this video going, oh, my God, I don't even know where to begin with this thing. So I just picked on a few key points of like slapping your hand and shaking your ass and doing some, you know, some Beyonce stuff. And so I I did my little routine and whatnot. And apparently it was fabulous. And ironically, yes. And ironically, a couple years later, I ended up meeting Beyonce's father, Mr. Matthew Knowles. And ended up developing a really good relationship with him. And through that, ended up getting a distribution deal for my back catalog of music. And so as we were walking around his grounds of his music world complex in Houston, Texas one day, I had told him the story of how I had to do a Beyonce routine (laughs) for song class. And he got a kick out of it. And he was telling me how that that's Beyonce's alter ego, Sasha Fierce. So, Mm -hmm. um... I was acting out some Sasha Fierce there in my own uh, Astrum Lux Lucis kind of way. <laughs> and it was it was such fun. And that was, you know what? I remember the look on your face when I gave <laughs> you the assignment. And it was one of those, could, could, do I have another option here right. sort of look. And I remember thinking, oh, no, no, no. If you're not a little afraid of what you're about to do, then you're not going to get better. So done and done. Yeah. So it was, that was a, that was a day of walking into the fire, I think for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And just putting your ego aside and being like, Hey, you know what? If I look like a total idiot, then at least I'll bring some people some laughs, you know? (laughs) So, well, but also, you know, it's the times that you think you're going to look like an idiot that sometimes you find the most inspired 
uh, inspired things. It's because people are so afraid of looking like an idiot that they don't. I mean, Patty Labelle used to. She taught herself how to sing by imitating all of the animals in her barn on the, at the family farm. Oh my god! And <laughs> she would be making squirrel noises and chipmunk noises and pig noises and owl noises, and it's where she found her voice. Yeah. And wow. what's so lovely is I don't think she stopped to think, "Golly, is someone going to laugh at this?" I think she just thought, you know, I wonder if I could could hoot like an owl. Yeah. So and do it well. As far as you I'm know? concerned, yeah. if you're if you're not a, if you're not a little scared, and besides, and I will I have to say, you did your own. You you were Astrid Fierce, and it was really quite great. <laughs> yes, I was. So you took it. You took it, and you made it your own, man. I yeah. thought it was awesome. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to get, you know, a little bit of background on you. So did you always have a dream to be in the entertainment industry? I mean, tell us about that, the little girl with the dream and what did that look like? Because I know you have a law degree, I believe. So how does, you know. I do have a law degree. Yeah. Which which seems a little bit what, but I grew (laughs) up, my dad was an entertainer and He actually, he owned radio stations, and so we all started, when we were kids, we didn't get an allowance. We, if we wanted pocket money, we had to work an air shift or work in the radio station. And the moment that we were able to be licensed, and so I believe, although my dad was kind of a song and dance man, he was, gosh, he was an announcer at the Louisiana Hayride for Elvis, he was an announcer for the Tommy Dorsey Band, he he was just this incredible voice, and he had a law degree and had practiced law for a bit, but then decided when I was still in grammar school that he was going to pursue radio, and he dragged the whole family on into it. And <laughs> since I was the youngest, I ended up at the radio station that nobody wanted to be at. I ended up at the easy listening station at, <laughs> at 14 years old doing the news and weather and then cutting all of these commercials. But the first time that he put us in the booth, I was about maybe eight, and the song Kung Fu Fighting had come out, and he was doing a commercial about Kung Fu, and my brother and I, we were about eight or nine years old, had to sit in the background and make Kung Fu noises because they didn't have a sound effects uh, library. (laughs) So... It started, so I I went all the way through that, and I started, uh, I was dancing. Um, I think the first major thing that I did is somehow, and I think it's just because I had the bangs, I landed the tour of Snow White when I was about 17 years old. And that started into a whole series of coaches and people pushing me and grooming me and, you know, dance lessons and singing lessons and um, the whole nine yards, and it was it was very. Up until then, I had wanted to be a scientist, and then I went, no, no, I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, this is what I want to do. I had won a songwriting competition when I was fifteen, and so I thought that I was always going to be behind the scenes, mm. and kind of ended up, you no, know, ending up on stage, and I. Graduated from Sarah Lawrence, went to Sarah Lawrence, which was an incredible performing arts program. Ironically, I was a computers major, 
computers and social psychology. So Hmm. my dad kept saying, have something in the background. Have something as your fallback and then pretend like it doesn't exist or you'll have no career. Hmm. And so I got an incredible degree and hung around in New York and several shows in New York and then moved to L.A. and my father said, you know, you, you know, have the skills, have the knowledge, know that you've got to fall back if there's an emergency, but pretend like it doesn't exist. And so, man, I hit the boards in L.A. I was doing, you know, acting classes and singing classes. And my day job, and this was actually some really good advice that I got, um, I had some offers to wait tables. Obviously, I could have done the waiter route. And a friend of mine said, you know what, you can't know too much about this business and you can't know too many people in this business. So I signed up with a temp agency that only did placements with entertainment industry jobs. Mm. And so I did, I worked at the Paramount lot for a couple of months and then ended up at, you know, a couple of the agencies for a month or two at a time. And then I answered Fred Flintstone's fan mail for six weeks over at Hanna-Barbera, which was fun. Um, and I remember that was actually a really fun gig, but you have to look through the files to make sure that you're being consistent. And, uh, you know, greetings from Bedrock. And so did that and worked as a script reader because that was possibly – the the best way that I could think of to get to know good good writing, good properties, um, and to use my imagination. And so I would I was a script evaluator for a couple of the studios. And so I would read all these brand new screenplays and I remember we got forty bucks a screenplay. And I would take home, I would go in and check in at Orion Pictures and take home thirty scripts. Hmm. And just sit and read and do the analysis and and start to figure out is this a good movie? Is this not a good movie? You know, is this a good story? Do I like this? Um, and I ended up getting a full time job at Orion um, in in the business affairs department as one of the writers negotiators. And at the same time, I was performing at the Lawrence Welk Theater at night, and I was at the Beverly Hills Playhouse for a while, and at the Jupiter Theater. Um, every now and then I'd take some days off and go be, I was a, an extra. My friend Sally, uh, bless her heart, was doing some, some movies of the week. So on a lot of ABC after school specials, you'll see mm. me in the background. Um, <laughs> but I also, the other thing was I never pigeonholed myself because I was singing jingles and went to the studios with my demo tape and, and uh, at all of the commercial production houses. And I did a run with a company called Connor Productions where we would sit there all day long and sing, you know, Z107, Cleveland. And then, okay, what's next? Z104, Honolulu. All right. And so we would do all of these really great, you know, we would, I would sing jingles. I'm singing the backgrounds in the Libby's, Libby's, Libby's commercial. So I cobbled it together income from every source I could figure out. But in every case, my, my conversation with my dad always went like this. 
is it getting you any closer to where you want to be? Hmm. And so, um, you know, there would be times where I was offered, I was offered a lot of, of money to go work for a, a, a catalog, for a, a, baby, a, a baby clothing catalog. It was great money. And I thought, that's not, that's not in the direction that I want to be in. And so, you know, I passed on that and instead, you know, went and worked in the mail room at Fox for about 10 weeks until I landed the next thing. Because where, you was talk about where you want to be. Where, where was your wanting to be? What was your end goal? Were you wanting to be an actress? My, my at, at first I wanted to be an actress, and then I realized, my God, this takes a lot of, I don't want to watch what I eat. This is insane. Um, <laughs> I, 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 truthfully, I did a lot of really good shows. I, and I did, I had a really great, fun career. I did, you know, I, I did Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I played Florence in Chess. Uh, did some really great shows. I was in the original off-Broadway cast of Artists. Uh, most of the stuff that I did, it's kind of like one job would lead to another. But I never gave up my day job. Uh, and people used to look at me like I was nuts. <laughs> but I was constantly, because, again, what I wanted to do is if I ended up getting something huge, I wanted to be able to do it with no worries. Hmm. I wanted to be able to, you know, go spend, I spent about five months in the California high desert working on a on a film that, that ended up you know, not being released, but... I was able to, you know, quit my job and go and not the whole time sit there going, oh, my God, am I going to lose my apartment? And so that was why it was to be able, it's, it's almost like you're banking to buy time. I had Originally, I wanted to be an actress. It was cutthroat. It was competitive. I had a good career, but it was also one of those things where I, I started realizing that I liked being in management more. I liked being in uh, production more, and I really wanted to direct. And so it was a conscious decision when I was around 30 that I went, I was, uh, by that time I was part of the ensemble at the um, Houston Comedy Workshop, which is now a dry cleaners, but back then it was the bomb <laughs> because, you know, we had Janine Garofalo and Sam Hicks and uh, uh, Sam Kennison. I mean, it was a really great resident company, and I was just honored and thrilled to be part of them. And I loved writing with them, and I loved doing the comedy shows. But I also started thinking, you know what? I really, I think I want to direct. I think I, I really think I would rather create something new rather than keep waiting for somebody to give me permission to do what I want to do. Hmm. And so it, 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 when you are an actor, if you don't have, or a singer, if you don't have the, the skills or the ability to do your own projects or to spearhead your own projects, you're always going to be at the mercy of someone else to give you permission and tell you that you're good enough to do this, to, to, you know, you hope that a role comes along that you love 
as opposed to doing what Ben Affleck and Matt Damon did. They got tired of tooling around, and they said, you know what? We're going to write the greatest roles we can think of in, you know, Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. They wrote it for themselves to be great roles. Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky for himself and almost lost making the deal because nobody wanted to cast it. They all said, we love your movie, but, you know, we don't know who you are. <laughs> so, um, and he held to his guns. And so what I think has been fun is that uh, I knew enough at, about how to make, you know, how to who the players were and how the game worked that um, – and one of my actors who just left Austin is now in L.A., just got an L.A., uh, just got an award in Los Angeles for a show that he wrote himself. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he, but he put it in his head that, you know, by this date I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to write this, I'm gonna, if I have to rent a theater, I'm going to rent a theater, and I'm going to work my ass off to make the money to rent a theater. And, gosh, his reviews have been amazing. And so, you know, hats off to David Harper. He is killing it out there. Nice. But uh, but I, I get really excited when I see people taking control and stopping waiting for permission uh, or hoping that somebody will offer you a role that's pretty darn good or a song that's pretty darn good. Take control. That's why I was telling you at the very beginning of this why I'm so proud of you. Because, you know, taking control of what you're going to do. Because life is short. You know, do it. Do it. Do it. You're never too old. It's never too late. But if you're not taking steps forwards, believe me, you're going backwards. And the reason why is because everyone around you is still moving forwards. Mm, Yeah. And so all of my performers, my singers and my actors and my comics, one of my comics is now doing a national tour. And I get, I love it. I love it. I train them up and out. And, you know, I've got a singer who just landed a record deal. Rock on. Because what we do is, I know it sounds really stupid, but we grab, we live by little bitty whiteboards that everybody uh, totes around at the studio. And they make their list of goals, and then as you take one off, you put another one on. You never sit there and go, I got there. It's a big connect the dots. You you get off of that one dot, you go to the next one, boy, okay, you don't go back. You know, put another dot out there. Eventually, you're going to draw the work of your lifetime. But you have to keep heading, you have to keep... You know, your career, it's it's kind of like I tell my daughters that, you know, if they don't get out of the house, unless they have a really cute UPS man um, <laughs> or woman, they are, you know, you're going to be spending your nights watching, you know, uh, YouTube videos. So you your, your career's not going to come to you. You have to go out there and get it. And a couple of times I've made big gambles that have absolutely flamed out. And then I've had other gambles that I've gone, well, hell, that worked. 
But if you don't, if you don't take the gamble, if you don't, you know, dream big, I would rather dream big and fall short than spend every day, you know, singing songs that I know, that I know I can do. I did a show in New York about a year ago, and one of the numbers that was on the set list, it was, you know, it's my old band, one of the numbers that was on the set list, I hadn't ever attempted to do. And planes were running late, time was running late, we're rolling down the set list, and I realized, oh, my God, I don't know if I've ever even gotten through this song start to finish. And it was just a case of put on your big girl panties and see what happens. <laughs> it was like your Beyonce number, and I kind of went, I am getting ready to do a jazz version of Nickelback. This is going to be something. <laughs> and you know what? It may, it may have been one of the most fun things I've ever done. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, this is your host, Astrum Luxelusis. Did you know this show is totally funded by donations and sponsors? Yes, listener support and sponsor ads is how On the Record stays on the air. I've produced and hosted over 40 shows since July of 2015, and next month marks our one-year anniversary. It also marks contract renewal time, and I need to raise $12,000 to keep On the Record on the air for another year. If you've enjoyed the amazing conversations I've shared with some of the most prominent and successful women in the music and entertainment industry, then please consider making a donation or buying a sponsor spot today. Contact me at astrum at ontherecord.rocks for more information. Again, that's astrum at ontherecord.rocks. Help me keep On The Record on the air for another year. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. Are you ready to step into all of your greatness, to release the confidence that lies within, to stop playing small and settling for mediocrity? If so, then you need to join us at our eWomen Network International Conference and Business Expo in Dallas this year on August 4th through the 7th. There will be hundreds of women entrepreneurs from all over the world waiting to meet you to share knowledge, wisdom, and even partnerships. Our world-renowned speakers will teach, inspire, and motivate you to greater heights. Plus, the food, the fun, and entertainment at the best party in town will rock all of your senses. Look, no one makes it alone. So it's time to stop trying to be the COE, the chief of everything, and step into your role as CEO. The eWomen Network Conference is the perfect place to make that happen. Register at eWomenNetwork.com. When I won that songwriting competition when I was 15, my father asked me, and I told this story at his funeral not too long ago. My father asked him what I was going to do with my music. And I said, I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll sing it in next year's talent show. And he went, well, that's nonsense. He said, dream big. What's your biggest dream? And this was around 1974, 75. And the big hot thing was Barry Manilow, which I know everybody has trouble wrapping their head around the fact that he was ever a big hot thing. But he was. And he was, he was the big hot thing. And I said to my dad, well, then I would like Barry Manilow to sing my songs. That's what I'm going to do. I want Barry Manilow. I want to write songs for Barry Manilow. And dad said, hmm, all right, well, let's record them. So he set up a reel-to-reel in the living room and recorded my you know, four songs. 
And then he got, uh, he, he, we got on a plane and we went to New York. And we checked the yellow pages and we found Barry Manilow's manager's office. Because remember, there was no internet back then. Yeah. So we looked up on the yellow pages and found his office. And we went and we waited in the snow on the front steps and waited until Miles Laurie's secretary came in. We walked in, and the guy said, this is my daughter. She just won a songwriting competition. Uh, here is a cassette of the songs, and, and we would like Barry Manilow to consider recording, you know, these songs, and I'm sure she has more. And the receptionist just kind of looked at us, like, <laughs> where are you two rednecks from? <laughs> you know, and so Dad and I went and got a, you know, cup of hot chocolate. And got back on the plane back to the swamps of Louisiana. And about six weeks later, I got the loveliest letter saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Manilow kind of writes his own songs. But, wow, that was gutsy. And keep in touch with us and let us know how your career is going. Oh, wow. And he actually was, uh, it was, he was the one who got me in touch with the guy who I ended up working at the Jingle Company for. Oh, wow. All nice. because... You know, when years later, it was about three years later, and I was like, hey, were you serious about wondering what I was doing? So I'll be honest with you, it was, it was on paper, it was a failure as a life lesson, as, a, as a, 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 an idea of, of, of how to, to make it in this career, in this business. It was the biggest win I ever had. You know, my dad, every yeah. time I would say, I don't know, I'm going to sing the song in the bathroom, you know, okay, well, maybe I'll go sing it on the front lawn. Okay, well, maybe I'll do it in a talent show. It's like, dream big. Because falling short of dreaming big is going to always be further down the road than dreaming dreaming really tiny and making it. So that's that's what I mean when I say, you know, I think of you a few years ago in class, and then I think of you hanging out with, with Matthew Knowles. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, dream big and hold on to them. And yeah. don't, don't tie your self-worth or your self-esteem to hitting that goal or else you're going to be miserable. But my mm-hmm. goodness, do keep rolling towards it as, you know, this is kind of what I want to do. I, you know, right now I'm doing, you know, I still am teaching and got to love teaching, uh, but I'm also still doing a whole lot of production. And we just we just finished a you know film noir short called uh, Veronica's Sister, which is creepy and weird, and lots of smoke and black and white. And I'm in love with it. Uh, we did a <laughs> short a couple of years ago called Good Box, which is a love story that takes place in two adults who have built. Uh, you remember how we used to make forts out of old discarded boxes when we were kids? Mm-hmm. And so it's about two people who uh, have decided, uh, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna live in a cardboard box fort. So, nice. But we've been having, you know, we I, I've got incredible students around me at all times, and they inspire me. And my job is to train them up to a point that they are so busy that 
They can only stick their head in class every now and then to tell me what they're working on. Nice. So, That's awesome. But it's, it's, it's definitely a case of, you know, try to, uh, yes, working as an Uber driver is awesome. Um, you know, it's good money. I know a lot of performance who are waiters. But at the same time, you know, look at the production companies. Look at even the commercial production companies. Um, look at the record studios. I know people who have worked as a receptionist at a recording studio and slowly worked their way up through to either being on one side of the microphone or on the other, you know, being, you know, training to be an engineer. Um, You know, in the music industry, my gosh, get to know the people who run the venues. Don't just hope that the venue's going to notice you. Get to know the venue. Get to know the people behind the behind the scenes. If you're doing film and television, you know, no, you may not be able to get a job at you know at at uh, you know working on uh, I don't know uh, Orange is the New Black, but you know, look at the jobs with the agencies. There's so many. This is such a wide variety industry. And there are agencies and managers and colorists and film developing labs and, you know, art departments. There's just, there's so many, you can't know too much. Yeah. And you look at a movie like A Few Good Men and the the gentleman who played the, you know, one of the two accused soldiers had been... Um, a personal assistant to the director the year before. Oh, wow. And the director had, had said, you know, I really think, you know, I really think you've got something, you know, something special. I think, you know, let's get you straight into this role. Fiona Apple was, left her demo tape. She was, she was the babysitter for a record producer. Oh, wow. And left her demo tape. So... You know, there, there's, there's a bazillion ways to skim this cat, but always just ask yourself, you know, is this, you know, is, is this in some way on the road to where I'd like to be and be able to look around and go, well, this was a good run. Hmm. Yeah. You know, this was a good run. This, this, you know, be thrilled for the opportunities that you've got. Don't pine for the things that you miss. Always sit back and go, okay, didn't grab that brass ring, but oh my goodness, look how high I jumped. Yeah. I did learn. Talk a little bit more about that because you're such a positive, happy, outgoing, uplifting kind of person. You know, when your students come to you and they've, you know, they've got turned down for a role that they really wanted or, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, like how do you coach people through um, the, those no's and those discouraging times and times when it just oh, seems like nothing is going in your favor? Boy, you know what? I sit there and cry with them. I literally sit there and go, damn, that would have been awesome. That would have been so great. But it is, you have to look at it like buses. You have to look at it that, um, first of all, you can't blame yourself. If you were prepared and if you gave it your best shot and they still said no, 
one of the things that I do with a lot of my actors is I make them sit on my side of the casting for mm. a project or two so that they can sit there and see what it's like to have 20 people come in and, you know, none of them are – occasionally you'll get one where you go, ooh. Um, but for the <laughs> most part, they're all doing their best. But if I had it in my head, when, when you're reading these scripts, when you're, you're getting ready to direct something, when you're writing these scripts, I teach a screenwriter's class as well. And when you're writing it, you hear it in your head, and you see that person in your head. And somebody's got to come in and do something – pretty darn remarkable for you to shake this image that you've had in your head for six months. And if I've always seen somebody as being a tiny, squeaky voice, little redhead, and a five foot eleven African-American woman comes in, something in me is immediately going to go, that's not, no, I am sure you're fabulous, but that no, wasn't what I saw. Now, there's always that possibility that she's going to blow me away. But for the most part, she hasn't done anything wrong. And I keep trying to explain this to my actors, and they do get it. And the secret is to recognize that none of these gigs that you're going after, if you act like they are the answer to your prayers, then you're thinking about this wrong. Gig, a role, a show, an event is never going to to answer your prayers. It's never going to, you know, you don't get there and go, oh, now everything's perfect. Doesn't work that way. (laughs) What you have to do is recognize where you fit in this industry and stop concentrating on the industry being the answer to your prayers and you start concentrating on you're the answer to someone else's problem. Mm. You're the answer to someone else's prayer. And keep that in your mind, then you can never be disappointed if you don't get a gig. And it makes you a hell of a lot grateful when you, more grateful when you do get it. But it's not gratitude. It is, hey, we're all working together here. They haven't done you a favor. You're doing them one. Yeah. You know, you, you answered. They have been, when the people are sitting on the other side of the audition desk, And they are just, believe it or not, they want you to be good as badly as you want to be good. And they see 50 people who are not quite right. Boy, that person walks in who's exactly what they had in their head. And more than that, what they had in their head and more, they are as thrilled to have found you as you are to have found them. So just always remember that you're a piece in them. And that, you know, it's just like I was working with, with, with a band that we ended up doing, you know, every Tuesday night at this club down in the West Village. And at first we were so, God, we are so lucky to have this show. And then we realized they were so happy to have us because we were packing the place on a Tuesday. Mm. So win-win. And we sat down with them from the beginning and said, you know, we love this gig. We love this place. What can we do to help you? And they're like, get people in here. And we're like, okay. You know, we didn't resent trying to help them because we recognized that we were all in it together. We wanted to make money, and they wanted to make money, and we wanted to make music, and they wanted to be known for presenting really great music. 
So you always have to view the people that you're meeting along the way. They're not magicians. They're not the answer to your prayer. They're not the be-all, end-all, and they don't have all the power. The power comes when you all find each other. Hmm. And that's, you know, there's going to be roles that you're not going to get that you really wanted, but another audition is going to come along. It will come along. And if you take it personally and go, gosh, what did I do wrong? Well, you may, you may have just had the wrong color hair, sister. <laughs> I just got through casting a film where our leading man is five foot six. Wow. I had to tell all of these actresses who are over five six, I'm sorry, <laughs> we can't use you or he's going to look like a Muppet. <laughs> Yeah, I know you like the role. I know you want the role, but it's okay. Look at how many opportunities there are out there. There's five million cable channels. There's the Internet. There's the web. There's, God, the opportunities that, that, that kids have now that we didn't have. We had three networks and PBS. <laughs> you wanted to be an actor, your choice was community theater or Broadway. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, you the opportunities are so huge. You lose a role, hey, uh, okay, because there's only 45 million roles out there. Really, you're going to tie yourself to that one? That one was going to be it? Yeah. Can't do it. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not personal. You want the right thing. It's like marrying someone for the sake of getting married. Oh, my God, please don't. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not going to solve anything or fix anything. As a matter of fact, it could end up keeping you from finding the person you really should be with. Yeah. So don't do it. Don't do it. Don't tie yourself up to a role that you really, really want. You're going to get a lot of no's. And I've had people who have been devastated by the no's. And you have to keep remembering that less than 5% of the membership of the Screen Actors Guild make enough money to live on. Hmm. And that's the members of SAG. Yeah. And for actors under the age of 16 in Los Angeles, the average number of auditions that a kid goes on before they get a role, before they actually get cast, is 52. Wow. So the only thing, and this is what I tell everyone who gets a no from an audition, is, okay, well, your numbers are rising. You're getting closer to it. You lose one out of one, well, that's tragic. That's huge. But if the average is 52, well, you better go lose a bunch more before the odds start coming in your favor. Yeah, it's kind of like the 10,000 hours concept. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, artists need to value themselves. They need to know what they're doing. They need to work on their craft. You're never... Gosh, I, I was in class in Los Angeles with people at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. There are people who have been studying there for 10, 12 years that are on series that are, you can always learn more. You can always do, you know, you can always do better. 
Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, this is your host, Astrum Luxlusis. Did you know this show is totally funded by donations and sponsors? Yes, listener support and sponsor ads is how On the Record stays on the air. I've produced and hosted over 40 shows since July of 2015, and next month marks our one-year anniversary. It also marks contract renewal time, and I need to raise $12,000 to keep On the Record on the air for another year. If you've enjoyed the amazing conversations I've shared with some of the most prominent and successful women in the music and entertainment industry, then please consider making a donation or buying a sponsor spot today. Contact me at astrum at ontherecord.rocks for more information. Again, that's astrum at ontherecord.rocks. Help me keep On the Record on the air for another year. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. Are you ready to step into all of your greatness, to release the confidence that lies within, to stop playing small and settling for mediocrity? If so, then you need to join us at our eWomen Network International Conference and Business Expo in Dallas this year on August 4th through the 7th. There will be hundreds of women entrepreneurs from all over the world waiting to meet you to share knowledge, wisdom, and even partnerships. Our world-renowned speakers will teach, inspire, and motivate you to greater heights. Plus, the food, the fun, and entertainment at the best party in town will rock all of your senses. Look, no one makes it alone. So it's time to stop trying to be the COE, the chief of everything, and step into your role as CEO. The eWomen Network Conference is the perfect place to make that happen. Register at eWomenNetwork.com. Producing political talk on the East Coast for a long time. I was I was producing the McLaughlin Group and a show called Think Tank with Ben Wattenberg, and I just got really burned out in production. I knew I wanted to come back to it at some point, but that's when I went and got my law degree and I got a job offer at NASA. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do law, space law sounds really cool. So <laughs> um, I was like, you fight for the aliens' law, rights. I want to do I, I want to do cool law, so I have to do law. And they kept saying, "Well, you'll never, you know, it takes ten years before you get in a courtroom." And I was like, "Well, hell, I'd rather play a lawyer then, because I get to go straight to the courtroom and start playing a lawyer on TV. To heck with this, but space law, rock on with that." And then they had a budget cut, and I thought that that was kind of a sign on the on the wall that uh, I needed to go ahead. And, you know, do what I needed to do. I worked at the attorney general's office to make enough money to open the studio. Because I sat there and I thought, you know what? I've been taking classes more than half my life from some of the greatest people ever. You know, Sandra Meisner and Uta Hagen, um, you know, John Braswell, uh, Shirley Kaplan, who just recently retired, but... You know, Al Mancini, I had taken the, I had these incredible coaches, even all the way back to you know, when I was a teenager working with Isabel Rosenblum, um, which I still think is one of the greatest names ever. Um, I had collected all this information. I thought, my God, I need to pass this on. I need, I, I, I'd hate to die with this incredible collage of information in my head. So, to me, the studio is really a case of what what my big game, you know, what my big agenda is. Honestly, 
is I am dumping out my head everything that I've ever learned and passing it forwards and saying, here's another piece of information. What are you going to do? So I'm, I'm kind of in my elder years turning into, you know, into this big pay it forward agenda. I had a great <laughs> career. Now I need to, you know, I need to, to push others to have their great career. Right now, I'm I'm kind of pa- I'm passing it on along to yeah. see how they put it all together, so that then hopefully they can pass it along too. I'm finding that success is a mindset, and those people yep. who are successful are living a certain mindset, and it's been a huge shift for me because I used to live in the other mindset of you know I'm owed this I've put in my dues how come nobody's paying attention to me and you know all that kind of crap instead of like no I need to be serving people and I need to be you know backing out of my ego and it's like no you haven't paid any dues like you you think you've paid some dues but you haven't lived in your car you know you're not living under a bridge on Mopac you know right so I used to tell you that in class, and I've told everyone that in class a million times. This is a, it's kind of like when Kevin Bacon in Apollo 13, and he's suiting up to get into the the capsule, and the guy says, you know, are you okay? And he goes, I'm going to give these guys a really good ride. You know, he's not thinking, I'm going into outer space, and I'm going to be the best pilot in the world. He was thinking, I'm going to give these guys a good ride. Every show that you do, man, the best advice that I ever got from a stage manager was when I had a bad night on the Snow White tour. And I got off stage, and it was just a bad night. And my thumb was up my ass. I was not, I was not there at all. And we're on the bus heading back to the hotel, and the guy goes, bad night. I went, yeah, well, tomorrow will be better. And he goes, I don't think you get it. I was all of 17 years old. I said, what do you mean? It's like people have bad nights. He goes, you don't get to have a bad night. He said, everyone out in that audience, they've had those tickets sitting on their refrigerator for weeks. And that daddy circled the date on his calendar, and he came home early for work, and they fed those kids early. And everybody took a shower, and everybody put on fresh clothes, and everybody braved the traffic and drove across town, and they sat there because for weeks they've known that they were going to go sit and go watch the live production of Snow White. You don't get to say you don't feel it. And I cried, and then I realized he was right, and that conversation changed my whole approach to performing. They don't owe me. I owe them. I owe them. I owe them a good ride. I owe them a song that they are going to be singing the next day that they can't even remember what the lyrics were. I owe them, at the very least, the chance to smile and bop their heads for a second. I owe them. They don't owe me. Because then it's only when you take that attitude does it come back to you. And it comes back to you tenfold, mm-hmm. like planting seeds. Yep. And you suddenly realize that as an artist, you've changed them, and then by changing them, they change you. Yeah. That guy really did uh, change my whole attitude. Yeah. On 
on just what the hell I was owed mm-hmm. and what I was getting paid for. Um, generosity of spirit. Art is not art if you don't have an audience. So, And, yeah, I, I feel like artists are underpaid. I feel like musicians are getting really exploited. I think that anybody who says do this for exposure, boy, that's a pretty dodgy, boy, it better be some pretty decent exposure because, you know, and I've seen bands do it to other bands, and I've seen musicians do it to other musicians, and, my God, in the film industry, it's everywhere. Come to yeah. my film for exposure. Fine. Do that a couple of times. You can't pay the rent with exposure. <laughs> Your landlord does not take exposure. <laughs> and neither does HEB. <laughs> Try going down to Austin Tower and go, hi, I know I owe you $200, but I've been seen by 14 people this week, and they all really liked me. So that's got to be worth something. <laughs> and Austin Power just kind of sits there and goes, I know, what? So, no. Exposure, if it does lead to something else, great, knock it out. But, you know, don't, the decision to do something for exposure needs to be either for experience or to maybe you're honing, uh, you know, honing your stuff. Maybe you're testing out a few new songs. Maybe you're testing, you know, maybe it's a film that, gosh, you really do believe in it and nobody else is getting paid, so what the hell, let's do it. I'd like this for my demo reel. But, you know, after a while, you kind of sit there and go, I have value and I'm going to surround myself with people who know I have value and know what that value is, whether it's a club or a record label or a film producer, because they're not paying their rent with exposure. <laughs> I just don't know any country in this in this world that is accepting exposure as a working currency. I I maybe somewhere, but not here. This is that's a stand up routine right there. You know, <laughs> there are days where I wish I was still doing stand up because there are days where I have these kinds of revelations where I kind of go, God, I would like to share this with someone. <laughs> now I just vomited um, out on my blog. <laughs> so, oh my God. But yes, exposure is uh, highly overrated as a functional currency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what I'm gonna say. <laughs> so, even my dad paid me four dollars and twenty cents an hour to be a DJ. God, I could talk to you all day. You're such a, a wealth of information. And I just enjoy listening to you. Um, I feel like I've been babbling. I'm so sorry. I've been no, no, no. I, I would be focused. thinking of a question, and then like all of a sudden you would answer it. So I'm like, boy, okay, I'm just gonna <laughs> let this roll. This is gonna be easy, easy editing. <laughs> You've been Well, um, I do like to finish out with some final words of wisdom. So I know you've shared so much already. If you have that one just gold nugget that you can give us and send us on our way with, we would love to hear it. 
I'm I'm going to go back to what my dad used to say. You know, dream big, uh, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of failing. But the bigger you dream, the further you'll go. That's that is, you know, take a dream, make it your own, and don't be afraid of failing. If you're afraid of failing, you're in the wrong business. Mm. Dare to fail. Yes. Dare to fail. If you're going to go, it's like you dancing to all the single ladies. If you're going to go, <laughs> oh, for crying out loud, go big. That's the only thing I can recommend. Go big or go home. So, oh. Sounds like really stupid advice, but it's the best thing. It's the one thing that my dad, you know, and even with what I'm doing right now, I still have this series that I'm pitching, the $67 million budget. My husband keeps looking at that and going, that's got to be a typo. And I'm like, no, no, one day I'm going to get this done. Okay, it may never get done. But the people that I'm meeting along the way, when I call them up and go, hello, I'd like to pitch a $67 million series to you, after they're done laughing, they finally go, what the hell are you thinking about doing? Like in the world, they're like you're dreaming big here. I was like, I am. So I'm I'm going for change the world. How does that sound? Yeah, that's that's like my festival. It's 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 probably not going to happen this yeah. year because, you know, it's it's scheduled for September 10th, and um, I've raised zero dollars for it, and uh, so you know, but but I've met some cool people but, along the way <laughs> and learned a lot. Yeah. I mean that's the thing. It's so so you move it to next September. It's not like everybody goes, Gosh, I I would have gone to this if only it had happened last September. No. <laughs> that's just not people's reaction. They're gonna love it when it's there and they don't know that it's not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so stumbling towards Nirvana is not always a bad way to go. <laughs> At least you're um, heading towards something. Yeah. So oh, no. Okay, so it may not happen in September. That's all right. Maybe January. Maybe next September. Maybe yeah. 2018. It'll happen when it happens. Yeah. And along the way, you know you're walking somewhere. You know you're going mm-hmm. somewhere. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week. 